Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast, the fastest growing podcast in women's health. Today's Monday, March 28th, 2022. I'm joined today by Dr. Jen Lamb-Racklin to talk about polyhydramnios, deep water. Polyhydramnios is when we suspect that there is an increased amount of amniotic fluid surrounding the baby. It's one of those situations where the Google can terrify patients, but usually everything is actually fine. Jen and I talk about why everything is normally fine and in what situations it might not be. As for the deep water part, well, the drop of this podcast coincided with the release of the new Ben Affleck movie, Deep Water, which I've not seen. So there you go. All right. For those of you keeping score, today's podcast completes two years of Healthful Woman podcasts as our first one dropped the beginning of April 2020. It has been a crazy two years in the world, but one of the bright lights for me has been this podcast. What started out as an idea has become a real thing, and I'm really thankful to all of you who tune in to hear what we have to say. For our two-year anniversary, we're going to start with some redrops, or what people my age call reruns, just to catch you up on some of the older podcasts. Next week, we're going to redrop the very first Healthful Woman podcast where Emily Oster and I talked about Corona in April 2020, which was the very start of the pandemic. It's going to be really interesting to look back and see what parts we guessed right and what parts we guessed wrong. Spoiler alert, we got it mostly right. All right. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. See you Thursday on High Risk Birth Stories. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Helpful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, Dr. Jennifer Lamb Racklin. Jen, welcome back to the podcast. How goes it? I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you for having me back. <laughs> It's my pleasure. Uh, sorry, we're not in person, but uh, it's not a COVID thing. It's just a scheduling thing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, such as such as the world of our of our lives with scheduling. But it's good to have you on. And this is a topic that I know that you and I see a lot of uh, in our day to day work. And I think that it causes a tremendous amount of stress and usually unwarranted. Uh, either people, you know, they go on the Google or they come in with the concerns or maybe someone else told them it was a huge problem. Uh, and that is polyhydramnios or high fluid. Uh, how many times a day or a week would you say you have this conversation? I mean, at least at least once a day, right? A uh, new diagnosis <laughs> and then at least once or twice a day for people who are coming back for follow up. So it's, it's very frequent. <laughs> yeah, I say to say if you're if you're in a busy ultrasound unit uh, seeing pregnant women, it, I mean, definitely once a day, if not more. I don't know if people find that reassuring or not reassuring, but it is common. It happens a lot. You know, statistically, it's like one to 2% of pregnancies and people think that's rare, but that's not. That's actually pretty common in the world of pregnancy, one to 2%. How do you explain to people like what it is? Like, what are we talking about here? Polyhydramnios. For kind of simplistically, we see a little extra amniotic fluid from the quote norm that we set, right? Um, and for the most part, it's it's a benign finding. It doesn't really mean much. It doesn't have you know any adverse events. But there's certain things that we think about when we see excess fluid, and and we do the evaluation for it at the time. 
and generally things are things are normal um and it's just a follow-up more detail wise and usually i would <laughs> talk about exactly what that means right like you know what is normal fluid what is abnormal right. fluid how do we measure <laughs> right and i think that that's part of the hard part is you know so the baby swims in amniotic fluid and you know we try to measure it but it's hard because we can't really get in there and get a volume, you know, to say there are three liters or whatever a fluid in there. There are people who've tried to do that and, you know, estimate and quantify, but it's it's pretty complex to do that and frequently involves having to like stick a needle in someone to do that. So we don't do that. And right. so we're just doing an ultrasound. And, you know, sometimes her belly might seem a little bit bigger than expected, sometimes not. And when we do an ultrasound and we measure the fluid, it's a bell-shaped curve, right? So there's a varying amounts of fluid that we call normal. And if someone is like above that or below that, we call it abnormal. But we know that just like most bell-shaped curves, people on the outer ends are, are usually fine. It's just they're whatever. For whatever reason, they have more fluid or less fluid or they're taller or they're shorter. And it's not usually pathologic, but it's usually just whatever. This is the number that they right. have and it doesn't mean anything. And and the other reason it's hard is because the fluid level changes all the time. I mean, from day to day, from week to week, uh, probably from minute to minute, you know, you can measure it. You, yeah, you can measure the fluid four times in a row and get different numbers because, you know, ultrasound's limited. We can't, again, get the volume. The baby moves and suddenly a big pocket of fluid is now filled with a, you know, a butt, right? <laughs> There's no fluid in that spot. And so that that is something that I think frustrates a lot of people and they can't get such and we give them a number, but they, they feel like it's a little bit less scientific than maybe some other things we measure. <laughs> right. I, I agree with that. Um, I mean, even from from within the same scan, we could def get, definitely get different measurements. They're, they're all usually around the same ballpark. It's not going to be like tremendously different, but the ballpark number could be just above the cutoff or just below the cutoff or right around the cutoff. But, you know, that's one of the reasons why we have patients come back, right, routinely, like once a week to to see if there's any traumatic changes in terms of that number. Right. And it's also, it's interesting because, you know, we'll talk about the ways we measure the fluid, but one of the ways, sort of the traditional way, and it's it's completely legitimate, is literally just eyeball it and have someone who has experience, sonographer, doctor say, that's a lot, that's normal, that's not enough, right? Just one of the three. You have a lot, you know, like small, medium, large, right? And, and that actually is that's true. Like you can sometimes just eyeball it and say, I don't care what the number is, that looks high, or I don't care what the number is, that looks normal. And there is validity to that kind of assessment. If the person, you know, if it's someone who does ultrasound all the time, you get a good sense of that. We tend to give numbers, people like numbers, uh, but that is the reason it's valid is because again, since these numbers don't mean so much, you know, point to point, uh, it's really just the overall gestalt. Is this a lot of fluid? Is it normal? Or if it's a lot, is it really a lot? Like a tremendous or just a little <laughs> bit more? And and that's how we sort of break it down. So how do we measure fluid technically, like to give a number? What are the two ways that we that we do it? So two ways are either traditionally or historically we use an AFI, which is arbitrarily separating the belly into four quadrants and then measuring the deepest pocket within each of the quadrants. And if the sum total is 24 centimeters or higher, it's considered polyhydramnus, it's going to consider excess fluid. Another way of measuring fluid amount is just going by the deepest pocket that you get. And if that's you know, higher than eight centimeters, that's considered polyhydramnios or excess fluid. And I think varying practices will use either way of assessing fluid amount. Right. And so some people like the amniotic fluid index, which is sort of measuring the four, some like the deepest pocket. And sometimes you get in a situation where one of them is abnormal and the other one's normal. And then what do you do? Okay. And where does the amniotic fluid 
come from? So, you know, once we're measuring it and we're talking about it, people are like, well, why, like, what is that stuff? Why, do we why care? Would, yeah, why would I care? <laughs> what is it? Generally, what I tell patients is mostly baby urine, right? So, so baby goes through cycles of peeing and swallowing, peeing and swallowing. So most of what we measure in terms of amniocyte is coming from the urine of the baby uh, with like a small amount of the rest coming from either placenta or lungs, but, but the vast majority is urine. Yeah, I think people are sometimes surprised to learn that babies live in a pool of their in own pee. Um, and not only do <laughs> they live it. in there, yeah, they drink it. Meaning the babies don't get, they don't get hydrated by drinking their own pee, right? In fact, they get hydrated through the umbilical cord, through their, you know, through the belly button, but they do swallow it, the the pee. And it, it actually is helpful to them because it, it gets in their lungs. It helps their lungs actually like like expand and mature and we see the fluid in their stomach and there is a cycling. Some people find that gross, but that's how it is. That's what the babies, <laughs> that's what they live in. The reason we go over that with people is when there's high fluid, some of the possible causes of it could be related to that cycle. So like if the baby is either peeing more or potentially swallowing less, there would be high fluid. And so we sort of, that's part of the reason we go into that explanation. So what's going through in our head. So if we see high fluid, what do we do? Like, how do we assess what's going on and what else is there so we can figure out, is this something that's important or not? Yeah. So generally we would check on the, the size of the baby. Reason for that, it kind of tells us, you know, if, if the baby's measuring large, um, a larger baby can make more urine, just like a larger adult might make more urine, then maybe that's an explanation for polyhydramnios. Or uh, and when we think about larger babies and excess fluid, we think of potentially diabetes or gestational diabetes. So we want to make sure that the patient has had screening for that or being tested for that. Otherwise, if, if the baby is very, very small and we find polyhydramnios very early on, then that might point, point towards a more of a pathology that's innately with the baby, like we think of genetics and stuff like that, but those are rare. The other assessments that we look for is just general movement, right? Like if we, we are worried about maybe the baby's not moving well or not swallowing as well, then the assessment of movement will help. So if the baby's vigorous and doing all the movements that we want and not showing signs of distress, that's reassuring. And then things that we also look for would be to see fluid go all the way down to the stomach because that tells us that there's not a big blockage or obstruction to that normal digestion of the amniotic fluid. When I'm meeting with people either who were diagnosing it on that, you know, during that ultrasound, the fluid's high or they had it before, sort of the assumption going into it is that the vast majority of babies with high fluid, everything's fine, right? Baby's fine, mom's fine, everything's good, nothing's going to happen. And so we're looking for things that or not seeing things that would indicate otherwise. So for example, we want to make sure, all right, the number one cause of this is nothing. Baby's fine. Everyone's good. Okay. So another cause, like you said, another common one might be gestational diabetes or real diabetes. And so we make sure, all right, did you have a screen for it? Was it normal? Or if you are diabetic, how are your finger sticks? Like, are they normal? Okay. So other than those two, right, it's, you know, baby's fine and diabetes, there are other conditions, like you said, that are much worse, but much more rare. And so, for example, if we're worried that the baby has some sort of like disorder that they can't swallow, yeah, those babies, there's, there's neuromuscular disorders where babies don't swallow, but they also don't move, right? So if I see high fluid in a baby just like floating around in there, not moving at all, yeah, that's pretty scary. But if the baby's bouncing around and swimming laps back and forth and, you know, you know doing kick turns at the fundus, then it's very, that's not going to be the cause. Similarly, if the baby looks normal and had normal genetic testing and it's not presenting until late in pregnancy, 
the chance that it's a genetic disorder is very low. And if I see the stomach filled with fluid, the chance that there's some blockage, like the baby's trying to swallow but can't, you know, so it's very, very low. And so when we see all those things reassuring, we say, all right, you know, like statistically, overwhelming likelihood is nothing's going on and you're fine. And then why would we bring them back if we do an evaluation and we think everything looks okay? What is the reason we might want to follow it serially? Yeah, you want to see whether it's stable or resolves, right? Like it resolves maybe just that one-time thing, whatever, we just caught the baby in the cycle just peeing and haven't quite swallowed everything back yet, or is it, is it stable? Like it's poly still, but it's con- really consistently in the same ballpark. Or if the fluid level has dramatically increased, right? So so even at the initial assessment, knowing that most of the time these are idiopathic and, and there's nothing necessarily wrong, if we do see a dramatic increase week by week, then maybe there is something going on that we're not able to pick up at least ultrasonographically, or we might pick up at future ultrasounds. Yeah. I mean, if the fluid's going up and up and up every single time, there's definitely a higher level of concern that there's like a blockage or something like that. And unfortunately, we aren't really good at seeing those before birth, meaning you know, ultimately the way to find out if there's a blockage is after the baby's born, you feed the baby. And if the food goes down, there's no blockage. Kind of old school, but it works. It's, you know, it's more and more likely if the fluid's going up and up and up. But again, that's really the exception. Most people who come in and get a diagnosis of high fluid, it stays around the same number. Like if, you know, 24 is a cutoff and let's say we diagnose them to 27, you know, a week later it might be 29, then it's 25, then it's 30, then it's 25 again. It sort of does that kind of bounces around. But if it went from 25 to 30 to 40 to 50 to 55, yeah, we're really worried that there's something more going on. But fortunately, that is the exception. And also, we like to see the fetal movements week to week, because again, if there's if we're some concern that potentially there's some, you know, thing going on, if the baby keeps moving every week, and we see the baby moving every week, and the mom feels the baby moving every day, then that's highly unlikely. uh, And it's less concerning for us. What do moms feel when they have high fluid? Physically, you mean? Or when we tell them? (laughs) Oh, no, I don't mean emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. Physically, they, I mean, they might feel totally normal, right? Like they, they don't have to feel anything. If they do feel something, they might feel like they are like physically a little bit bigger than where they should be because of just the added size of the fluid to the, to the belly, to the uterus. They might feel more contractions. They might go have contractions earlier. They might go into labor earlier. But I would say, I think most patients would probably feel nothing out of the ordinary. If anything, they just feel a little bit bigger. Yeah, I think most people are surprised to learn that the fluid's high yeah. um, and because they usually feel fine. And what's interesting and also actually nice about the high fluid is since there's more fluid, the baby does have more room to bounce around. And so typically they really get that reassurance of, oh, oh, oh I feel my baby moving all the time. Right. Whereas someone with the fluids a bit lower as the baby's getting bigger, those movements get more subtle. And now that we freak them out, and we're worried about the baby's movement. It's nice that at least they get that feedback every day that, oh, yeah, this baby's, you know, just just swimming laps and doing great. That is helpful, fortunately, because if someone has low fluid and we have other concerns, they often don't feel the baby move as much because there's no room in there. They have a hard time, you know, punching and kicking because they're just, you know, more crowded. So that's interesting, you know, that they that they have that. Now, you know, when we think about high fluid, you know, we've talked about our concerns of the cause of the high fluid, right? So we get, you know, we want to make sure it's not genetic, we want to make sure it's not an anatomic problem or something neuromuscular. But 
what about the effects of high fluid, right? What are we concerned about that might happen because there's high fluid for whatever reason? You know, obviously it depends on the amount that we get and also gestational age, but let's say we, we see the high fluid and it, she's preterm, um, it is expanding the uterus, right? So so uterus is just a muscle. When muscles expand, it can contract. So we're worried about that she might go into preterm labor or just rupture their, you know, their, break their water or rupture their membranes earlier. Um, or at term, again, if that occurs, that's not necessarily that scary, but sometimes the head is not fully engaged because it's floating around in a big bag of water. Um, and sometimes when, when the membranes rupture, the, the, the umbilical cord can slip between the, the baby's head and, and the, the cervix, and that's called a cord collapse. But again, those are rare. That's not like the, the most frequent things that, that occurs. Yeah. And, and is there ever a time when we try to drain the fluid out of the uterus? Preterm wise, if there's just a significant elevation to the point where it's affecting mom's physical symptoms, right? So, so with the excess fluid, they kind of doesn't allow her diaphragm to really expand as well. So, so they might have more difficulty breathing. And in those cases, then we would do what we call an amniotic reduction, which is reducing some of the amniotic fluid, just so that we could give some mom, the mom some symptomatic relief. Yeah. And I mean, that's pretty rare. I mean, we, like you said, we, we have this conversation about high fluid every day. And I would say maybe once or twice a year, maybe we're, we're doing the amnio reduction to get rid of some of that fluid. It's pretty unusual to do that. But again, and it's mostly just for maternal symptoms in that sense, because sometimes if it's really bad, you know, if the number is like 40 or 50, sometimes it can be pretty uncomfortable. Uh, and that would be something. And I think it's also really important, you know, when we talk about polyhydramnios and people listen to this, it's a, and you mentioned this before, but it's really critical. When is it diagnosed, right? Because the vast majority are diagnosed at the end of pregnancy, you know, past 32 weeks, past 34 weeks, past 36 weeks, somewhere there and where it's almost always nothing. It's a lot different if we see it at 20 weeks. And, and why is that? We see it earlier that kind of raises the, the suspicion that there is something going on with with the baby you know when we say something's going on it's either structurally or genetically right um so we think of genetic abnormalities or structural abnormalities on the baby versus you know you know the later half of the third trimester it's so common to see it it's so commonly idiopathic and, and generally not associated with those concerns yeah when i see someone at 34 weeks with high fluid they may be worried initially but the conversation is usually very reassuring you know, this is very common, everything's going to be okay, like, you know, typically nothing happens, we'll follow you, you know, yada, yada. Whereas if I'm having this conversation at 20 weeks, it's a lot more serious because we don't usually see high fluid at 20 weeks. And if we do see it, and if it's slightly above normal, fine, then that's, you know, that's probably just, you know, bell-shaped curve type of stuff. But it's if it's markedly elevated at 20 weeks, we are highly suspicious that there's an actual problem here, whether it's genetic. And so we usually will recommend an amniocentesis to look for genetic diagnoses or, you know, further imaging and echocardiogram and infectious studies, like all the other things that could possibly do it early. But again, fortunately, that's pretty unusual. Um, that's not a conversation we have every day, the 20 week polydrama. That's very rare, but it is a lot more scary. So the vast majority of people who have this and are listening to this, who know someone with high fluid usually was towards the end of pregnancy and, and it really wasn't that much. And what about with delivery? So number one, we'll start with the simplest. Does this, does having high fluid mean someone needs a C-section? 
No. So, so that's not an automatic C-section. Um, right. Obviously, there's other reasons why they could right. have a C-section, but just high fluid. Now. Right. And also, once you know, once they're in labor and their water breaks, no more high fluid. Right. So that problem solved. Um, I mean, you may want to warn the people on the floor below you that it, there could be flooding. <laughs> but um, there's sometimes a lot of fluid in that water break. So don't you know, if you have high fluid, uh, worth the wise, don't wear expensive shoes. Um, just in case the Sleep water. On a towel. Yeah. So, okay. So it does not require a C-section. What about the timing of delivery? Do we deliver people earlier than we normally would because of high fluid? I mean, not extraordinarily early. I mean, most of the time these are mild cases and we don't, and, and as I said, it's idiopathic, but in general, as a practice, we would say don't go past the due date. So you might be thinking of an induction around the due date time period. Very rare that we would recommend any earlier than 39 weeks for, for just polyhydramnios, unless it's a severe case. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, you know, some of the studies or some of the Google, you'll find that there's an increased risk of stillbirth if someone has the high fluid. And it's, it's hard to understand why that would be. I mean, it, it makes sense if, you know, they go into labor and like you said, there's a cord prolapse, the cord drops. So that would be a reason to maybe, you know, bring someone in and in a controlled setting, induce the labor. Okay. If there's some cause of the high fluid that's dangerous to the baby, then, you know, it's not the high fluid causing the problem, but, you know, the problem causing the high fluid and increased risk of stillbirth. Okay. But why someone with sort of idiopathic, you know, a little bit above the line, high fluid would have an increased risk of stillbirth. We don't really know, but since it's sort of out there, uh, usually a lot of people are like, okay, let's just, you know, baby looks fine at 39 plus weeks. Let's, let's just, you know, get out of Dodge and deuce. It is a recommendation we make, but it's probably one of the softer ones. Uh, in terms of, you know, knowledge, uh, why we make that recommendation. You know, even with like the in increased risk of the stillbirth, it's still, the absolute risk is still quite low. It's still less than 1%. So, right. so you know, it's not like we diagnose poly and, oh, we should, you know, induce that 37 weeks just for poly. That's, right. You know, that's the reason why we kind of let, you know, pregnancy go. Most people hopefully will just deliver and go into labor beforehand. And if not, then... Uh, a good time period would be, you know, due date uh, in terms of induction. Right. With super, like, really high fluid, you know, we, we sort of grade it as mild, moderate, and severe, but like, whatever, when it's really, really high, we'll often recommend delivery earlier just because we're really worried that if their water breaks at home, you know, bad things might happen, that the baby might not be head first anymore, you know, and there's like a hand presenting or the cord could come out, or when her water breaks, since the uterus gets sort of like decompressed from such a big size to a smaller size so quickly, maybe the placenta will shear off and she'll have what's called an abruption and start bleeding. And so we get uh, we get more concerned when the numbers like, you know, mid to high 30s or 40 or something. And usually in that situation, we're going to bring them in a little bit earlier. But the sort of the bread and butter, so to speak, you know, polyhydramnios where it's like 24 to 35, uh, I agree. We usually... We do it 39 to 40 weeks, and but even if we didn't, probably everything would be okay uh, when they just went into labor on their own. When you have this initial conversation, how much do you go into with this? I'm just curious. You know, do you just sort of say, all right, everyone's okay, come back in a week? Or do you go into everything, including delivery in the first time? Or how do you make that decision? I try to give most of the information. Again, as you said, most of the time this happens in the second half of the third trimester. It's usually mild, and we all know that that's probably idiopathic, right? Because that's the vast majority of the time. So I don't scare them with like so many scary scenarios, but we did talk about, you know, what, you know, if this persists, right? Like what it could mean, if it gets worse, what it could mean. And then if it stays like this, you know, from a delivery standpoint, 
like generally recommend delivery maybe by due date or something like that. But try to, you know, talk about all these potentials without getting too scary, unless I am concerned. If I'm concerned, then it might be a scary talk. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I agree. You know, again, if it's early in pregnancy or when I see them, the fluid is crazy high or I see other abnormalities of the baby's not moving. All right. That's that's a that's a scary talk, obviously, because there's a higher chance that it's it's a big deal. But in this sort of typical scenario where mom is fine, everyone's everyone's feeling okay, baby looks fine, just the number, the measurement we're getting is above the bar, like a little bit higher. I'm usually telling them the same and saying, listen, this is almost always nothing. You know, if you don't have gestational diabetes, it's probably absolutely nothing and you're gonna be perfectly fine. But since it sort of like raises a warning flag, we're gonna follow you a little bit closer. We'll see every week, we'll check the fluid, make sure it's not getting higher, make sure the baby's moving, make sure the baby's growing well. And which is normally going to happen. And as long as the fluid's not getting crazy high, we're just going to wait and just watch closely and wait and deliver, like you said, somewhere by the due date, give or take. And I think most people are pretty fine with that. I mean, maybe a little bit annoying to come in every week for an ultrasound. And you could get away with not doing it, obviously, because most of the time it's nothing. But I think it's important just to get that ongoing reassurance that when we're when we're telling them it's probably fine, I'd like to be able to, you know, verify that week, week to week <laughs> and not just, you know, go with the numbers and say, all right, you know, it's still fine. Fluid's still mild. Baby's moving good. You know, come back in a week. And I think that most people appreciate that. Some people get annoyed with it, obviously, but that's the reason we're doing it. It's just, we can go by the numbers and just say, you know, 90 plus percent of the time it's going to be fine, but uh, we'd like to, you know, tighten that up a little bit and not just make that recommendation once and, you know, be on your way till delivery. Right. I agree. And is this something that happens in future pregnancies if they had it once? You know, we've I've seen it occur, a recur in future pregnancies, um, but it doesn't have to. So, so meaning that you know, I, you know, I don't think that once you have poly, that means that all future pregnancies you'll have polyhydramnios for unknown reasons. But interestingly, we've seen some patients back, and they're like, "Oh yeah, my last pregnancy, I had the same thing." Yeah, it may just be that that's where they fall in terms of the bell-shaped curve. When I joined the practice, the first patient I had, I always call her my first patient because. You know, I start, you know, who, who the hell wants to see me, right? I'm the new guy. So my schedule's wide open, you know, you know, Rebarber, Ben, they're packed. They got, you know, they're three deep <laughs> people waiting to see them. And there I am sitting twiddling my thumbs and this, you know, nice young woman, pregnant, first baby. She's like, oh, I'll see him. And I see her and she's there because she has pretty high fluid. It was like in the mid thirties. It wasn't like a little bit, and, but everything looked fine. Nothing was really changing. We we're really sure. And she would come in twice a week, basically. And I was seeing her twice a week for like two months. <laughs> So we became pretty close. And then her next pregnancy, same thing. And it was really fascinating. And her kids are fine. No one ever figured out why it was. They don't have any kidney issues and they're perfectly healthy and everything's great. But I don't know, whatever it is, maybe there is some like genetic predisposition to making more urine when you're a fetus. That's not, you know, that's not pathologic, (laughs) but whatever. Or maybe it's just the way the uterus, you know, uh, stretches is different in people. We don't really know. It's interesting, but there are some people where it happens every pregnancy, they're like, oh my God, again, really? Yeah. This, you guys, <laughs> you again? And they know the drill. <laughs> <laughs> they know the drill. Beautiful. All right, Jen, high fluid, polyhydramnios, a long, a long word for not such a complicated situation <laughs> usually. It's a good word to freak people out. You have polyhydramnios. Yeah. It's when a you good bring, spelling the word. Yeah. When you bring out the Latin, it never sounds good. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, Jen. Appreciate it. No problem, anytime. 
Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan. Paid sponsors of the podcast are not involved in the creation of the podcast or any of the content. Support for our sponsors should not be interpreted as medical advice from the podcast, the host, or the guests.